Hello, everybody, and welcome into episode number 57 of the Bible 2021 podcast. We are reading Acts chapter 25 today, and our focus is on apologetics and the historical reliability of the Bible, particularly the book of Acts. So we are a daily 10-minute podcast where we dig into the truth of God's Word one chapter at a time. Welcome to new listeners in Rajasthan, India. Again, parts unknown Spain, Rome, Italy, Ontario, Canada, Columbia, South Carolina, St. Petersburg, Florida, and Nashville, Tennessee. Thank you all for listening. I want to invite you to check out our webpage, Bible2021.com, and invite you to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, iTunes. That really helps us get the word out. And speaking of getting the word out, if you share the show on social media, we would be much obliged to you. Thank you for those of you that do that. Let's open with an insightful comment looking into the future from WWH, who posted this two days ago. He says, Paul's sermons are all worthy of our attention, but I like the upcoming chapter better, talking about today's chapter, Acts 25, in which Paul preaches to Agrippa as an introduction to the sermon. Festus will tell Agrippa in Acts 25, 19, that he doesn't know why Paul is in jail. Quote, it has to do with their Jewish laws and with some man named Jesus who died, but whom Paul asserts to be alive. There is something almost right, but not quite about that, says WWH. And he notes that I too assert that Jesus died and is alive. Hallelujah. To me, he says, it is an interesting, it is interesting that tomorrow's passage has this misunderstanding of the gospel embedded into it. To me, it's one of many evidences that Acts is true history. If Luke were making this up, he would have explained the gospel better through the mouth of this particular Roman named Festus. Now, we're going to get to Paul's sermon to Agrippa tomorrow in Acts 26, but WWH is absolutely right. The way things are recorded by Luke in the book of Acts seems very devoid of any sort of propaganda. Luke doesn't edit out things that are embarrassing to key leaders like Paul or James or Peter, and it even contains some really ambiguous, head-scratching situations like James telling Paul to pay for some Jewish men to have their heads shaved in order for Paul to give the appearance to a bunch of Jewish believers that Paul too follows obscure, non-recorded in the Old Testament parts of Jewish tradition. I find this request of James, who was the leader of the Jerusalem church, honestly pretty out there and sort of wrong-headed. It ultimately leads to a near riot, causes Paul to get taken into the custody, and has the absolute opposite effect of what James seems to have intended. And just it just seems like a bad idea. But you know what? Luke almost never editorializes. He just simply tells us what happened, which I think is a really good mark of genuine history that many of the reporters and journalists of 2021 learn from. So let's read our passage, Acts 25, and observe Luke's integrity in reporting, so to speak, and then we will discuss a bit more about how historians adjudge a document to be reliable or not. Acts chapter 25, verse 1 in the Christian Standard Bible, three days after Festus arrived in the province, he went up to Jerusalem from Caesarea. The chief priests and the leaders of the Jews presented their case against Paul to him, and they appealed, asking for a favor against Paul that Festus summon him to Jerusalem. They were, in fact, preparing an ambush along the road to kill him, 
Festus, however, answered that Paul should be kept at Caesarea and that he himself was about to go there shortly. Therefore, he said, let those of you who have authority go down with me and accuse him if he has done anything wrong. When he had spent not more than eight or ten days among them, he went down to Caesarea. The next day, seated at the tribunal, he commanded Paul to be brought in. And when he arrived, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood around him and brought many serious charges that they were not able to prove. Then Paul made his defense. Neither against the Jewish law, nor against the temple, nor against Caesar have I sinned in any way. But Festus, wanting to do the Jews a favor, replied to Paul, Are you willing to go up to Jerusalem to be tried before me there on these charges? Paul replied, I'm standing at Caesar's tribunal where I ought to be tried. I've done no wrong to the Jews, as even you yourself know very well. If then I did anything wrong and am deserving of death, I'm not trying to escape death. But if there's nothing to what these men accuse me of, no one can give me up to them. I appeal to Caesar. Then after Festus conferred with his counsel, he replied, You have appealed to Caesar, to Caesar you will go. Several days later, King Agrippa and Bernice arrived in Caesarea and paid a courtesy call on Festus. Since they were staying there several days, Festus presented Paul's case to the king, saying, There's a man who was left as a prisoner by Felix. When I was in Jerusalem, the chief priests and the elders of the Jews presented their case and asked that he be condemned. I answered them that it is not the Roman custom to give someone up before the accused faces the accusers and has an opportunity for a defense against the charges. So when they had assembled here, I did not delay. The next day, I took my seat at the tribunal and ordered the man to be brought in. The accuser stood up but brought no charge against him of the evils I was expecting. Instead, they had some disagreements with him about their own religion and about a certain Jesus, a dead man Paul claimed to be alive. Since I was at a loss in a dispute over such things, I asked him if he wanted to go to Jerusalem and be tried there regarding these matters. But when Paul appealed to be held for trial by the emperor, I ordered him to be kept in custody until I could send him to Caesar. Agrippa said to Festus, I would like to hear the man myself. Tomorrow you will hear him, he replied. So the next day, Agrippa and Bernice came with great pomp and entered the auditorium with the military commanders and prominent men of the city. When Festus gave the command, Paul was brought in. Then Festus said, King Agrippa and all men present with us, you see this man. The whole Jewish community has appealed to me concerning him, both in Jerusalem and here, shouting that he should not live any longer. I found that he had not done anything deserving of death, but when he himself appealed to the emperor, I decided to send him. I have nothing definite to write to my lord about him, therefore I have brought him before all of you, and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that after this examination is over, I may have something to write, for it seems unreasonable to me to send a prisoner without indicating the charges against him. Dr. Gary Habermas is one of the best two or three professors I have ever had. An amazing teacher with an amazing story, fascinating to listen to, never bored for a second in his classes. And a uh, great writer, too. He's written a bunch of books. Um, in his book, The Case for the Resurrection of Jesus, Dr. Habermas, who is one of the world's foremost experts on the resurrection of Jesus, lists out several ways to know whether or not a historical document is trustworthy. And a couple of those ways are this. Let's read. 
He says, if testimony affirming an event or saying is given by a source who does not sympathize with the person, message, or cause that profits from the account, we have an indication of authenticity. An enemy generally is not considered to be biased in favor of a certain person, message, or cause. Suppose one of the witnesses to an accident was a friend of the one driving a car. The witness admitted that his friend was the one who ran the red light, and the detective weighs the testimony as somewhat stronger than the testimonies of the other eyewitnesses. A witness who would be considered somewhat unfriendly to the driver of the other car attested to his innocence. John Adams, as well, the second president of the United States, was known for his high standards of integrity, although this did not prevent his political enemies from attacking him. Alexander Hamilton was one such enemy. In a scathing 54-page pamphlet published to hurt Adams in a forthcoming election, Hamilton accused him of having great intrinsic defects of character, disgusting egotism, eccentric tendencies, better animosity, and an ungovernable temper. Yet, Hamilton made no charges of corruption, and he acknowledged Adams's patriotism and integrity. If Adams's mother or wife had spoken of his integrity, we might have reason to believe them, yet with some reservation. But when even his enemies acknowledge his integrity, the matter is pretty well established. And we see an example of this enemy attestation in this piece where Festus is talking about the claim of Jesus being resurrected from the dead. Now, he doesn't necessarily believe it, but the fact that he says it as a centerpiece of the message of Christianity in the first century is a pretty big deal. Dr. Habernas continues, Embarrassing admissions support historical claims. An indicator that an event or saying is authentic occurs when the source would not be expected to create the story because it embarrasses his cause and weakened its position in arguments with opponents. For instance, in our previous illustration, the police officer asks both drivers if they have previously disobeyed a traffic signal. The driver of one car says no. The driver of the other car admits that he has caused an accident 10 years ago because he ran a red light. The detective may tend to believe the testimony of the driver who admitted the accident over the other because he willingly shared information, although that information would tend to embarrass or hurt him. He appears to be attempting to tell the truth. Law professor Annette Gordon-Reed wrote articles arguing that Thomas Jefferson, the third president of the United States, fathered children by his slave Sally Hemings. Before DNA results proved her correct, one of the arguments she employed in support of her position related to this principle of embarrassment. A declaration from a close friend of, of, I'm sorry, a close Jefferson relative recorded the observation that it was obvious that Jefferson's blood, quote, ran in the veins of Sally Hemings' children and that one child could be mistaken for Jefferson. She argued that this testimony must be regarded as strong evidence indeed, quote, declarations against interest are regarded as having a high degree of credibility because of the presumption that people do not make up lies in order to hurt themselves, they lie to help themselves, she wrote. In other words, the statement by Jefferson's relative damaged the reputation of Jefferson and his family, given the social prejudice of the time when it was made. A relative would not likely have invented a statement that would hurt himself. Therefore, this statement weighs in favor of the argument that Sally Hemings bore children for Jefferson. Now, that's from the case for the resurrection of Jesus, and 
In Acts, we see multiple examples of these sorts of authenticating criteria, and that convinces me that we are dealing with real history reported by a remarkably reliable eyewitness in Luke. Well, let's close with our verse of the month, Acts 9.31. So the church throughout all Judea, Galilee, and Samaria had peace and was strengthened, living in the fear of the Lord and encouraged by the Holy Spirit. It increased in numbers. Amen. Good day to you, friends, and Godspeed.